Will you guys turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8? That brought me a lot of joy. You guys know the creed. It wasn't up there. You guys said it anyway. That's awesome. That was amazing. Um, I'm going to read actually the whole chapter of Hebrews chapter 8. We're not going to talk about the whole chapter. We're really just going to talk about this passage that we looked at in the call to worship and then in the assurance of forgiveness. And of course, this is a chapter that's about the new covenant. And so we're just going to ask that question today. What's the new co- what is the new covenant and what are, the, what are just a few benefits that everyone in this room that trusts Christ uh, owns because of the new covenant? So let me read uh, chapter 8, its whole entirety. Um, this is God's word. And then I'll pray for us. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, If he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Four, when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old is the covenant he mediates is better. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he made the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Will you pray with me? Father, these are unbelievable promises. Could it be true that you're not going to remember our sins? Could it really be true that these things that we do that keep us awake at night, that we reckon as iniquities in our own hearts, you don't remember them at all? That's all we remember is our sins. Could it really be true that you'll separate those things from us as far as the east is from the west? Could your law really be engraven on our minds? Our minds that are troubled with distraction and lust and envy and resentment, could those things really bear the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience? Could our hearts be flesh and not stone? Is that even possible? We hear your word saying it is this morning, Lord, and so we ask that you would send your spirit 
and that those things would be true, and that we would live our lives in that peace from here until eternity. In your name, amen. Well, when I was uh, in fifth grade, one of this in Kansas City, one of the pieces of curriculum of my fifth grade education, public school education, was that you had to uh, memorize the Gettysburg Address. And that was a long time ago, right? I don't, maybe you guys still do that. That was a long time ago, but I still can rattle that thing off. I will spare you, but the sound team has heard me do it over and over again when I mic check, and they love it. But the, the great thing, the thing that's amazing about the Gettysburg Address is this, right? And you guys, you, you don't have to have memorized it to have heard this. The thing that makes it amazing is it was really short. It was like two and a, I don't know, I didn't look it up, but it was like, it took Lincoln like two and a half minutes to say it. And the thing has somehow sunk deep into the soul of American civic life. And really, the point of the speech, it was 1863, Lincoln's going to Gettysburg, we're just a few months from bloody, bloody, bloody Gettysburg. And Lincoln's going to Gettysburg, and really all he's supposed to do is honor the men that died there and dedicate this cemetery. That's a formal thing, right? That's the kind of thing that presidents do all the time. That that kind of stuff does not shape history. Rose Garden speeches do almost nothing in our country. You guys all know that, no matter who the president is. But with Lincoln... Something else happened. Something happened and it sunk deep into our soul. And we make fifth graders memorize it, right? So, what happened? There's, I'll tell you, I don't, I don't pretend to have my own interpretation on how something like that happened. But there's a historian by the name of Gary Wills who does. And he wrote a book called Lincoln at Gettysburg. And the subtitle Of the book, Lincoln at Gettysburg, it's called Lincoln at Gettysburg, The Words That Remade America. And what Wills argues is, is that Lincoln did more on that day in December of 1863 than simply dedicate a battlefield, honor the dead, restate the ideals of our nation. He did something more than all that. He literally reshaped the fabric of the moral conscience of this nation. He used language that we all knew. If you go back and you look at the language of the Gettysburg Address, he's talking about our fathers bringing forth upon this continent a new nation, baptized in liberty, but what? Dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. To take that language out of a constitution that had explicitly condoned slavery and alter it and twist it and mess with it a little bit was to reshape our consciences together. So this is all Wills' language, not mine. So Wills says that the audience was having their intellectual pocket picked. He was transforming the moral consciences of the people by the reinterpretation of America's founding document. He did that not by burning 
and destroying the document, but by reading it, again, Wills' language is a secular historian, not my language. He did that by reading that, by reading the Constitution, not according to the letter, but according to the Spirit. Now the Constitution could bear the actual fruit of liberty, and Lincoln's speech thereby began the cleansing of America from her inherited guilt. That's an amazing paragraph, right? And I think, if you'll allow it, I know this is like an indirect analogy like crazy, but if you'll allow it, it's virtually the exact same thing that the writer to the Hebrews is doing. The writer to the Hebrews is drawing Israel out of the story that she's had for all these years. And she's sending her into an era, the writer, he is sending her into an era in which the covenant is expanded to be different in the most basic ways. We weren't, we, we, David has said this very eloquently a number of times. It's not as if we're like moving away from the judgment that we find in the Old Testament into the grace that we find in the book of Hebrews and in the rest of the New Testament. We've always found grace in the Old Testament. The Lord, the Lord, gracious, full of compassion, merciful, a God that forgives iniquities is one of the first things that God says about Himself. But what we are doing is we're moving, what we're moving into is not more bondage from the law of the letter, but to the freedom of the Spirit. So here's what I want to do this morning. Super simple. Um, We've gotten a lot, especially over the course of the last two chapters, a lot of what we call uh, Christology, which is just the word theology with Christ attached to it and God and Theo taken off of it. We've learned a lot about who Jesus is, especially as we've learned about his vocation as our high priest. And that stuff expands and explodes our imagination and calls us into deeper worship of Him over and over again. But here we begin to see the effects of it. What does it mean that Jesus is our great high priest? What does that do for the church? What kind of benefit are you going to find if Jesus, whose life is totally indestructible, what kind of benefit are you going to find if he's your high priest and not Melchizedek and not Levi and not Aaron and not whoever else? What's going to happen? And so what the writer of the Hebrews does is he takes this, this citation way back in Jeremiah chapter 31, this simple citation, and he says, this is what it's going to mean. And we've known it's coming. This isn't coming out of nowhere. Jeremiah knew this by the time he got to his 31st chapter. But this is what it's going to mean for you to know God in the way that the new covenant covenant is going to give you. Now, there's four things that I think you're going to see. And I'll read through them and we'll move move through them. Um, You heard them in the assurance. You heard them in the call to worship. And... As I read them this week and thought about them, I totally have to confess to you that Jeremiah 31 makes me really, really um, uncomfortable because I don't feel like God's law is always written on my mind. 
And I don't feel like God's law is always written on my heart. And I don't always feel like I'm in a community where people don't have to tell me to know the Lord. I feel like usually I'm the one in the community that people are saying, John, you need to know the Lord. You don't know Him in the way that you ought to. And there's a lot of times where I don't trust that God's going to forgive my iniquities and remember my sins no more. So Jeremiah 31 Amazing promises, difficult promises to believe, though. But if it's true, if that could be true, and I think it is, this is essentially what the entire New Testament has been trying to tell us all along. The word test, or the word, how do I want to say it? The word covenant, the word testament is just another word for the, new, for the word covenant. And so the New Testament is an opportunity for us to hear Over and over and over again as we read it, these promises are true. It doesn't feel like they're true this morning. It won't feel like they're true tomorrow morning, but they are. And the Spirit longs to not just tell them to you, but to write them on your heart and to write them on your mind. All right, so first first promise we hear, God's law is going to be put in our mind and written on our hearts. Do you guys remember... Uh, the I I don't know if you the twelfth chapter of the book of Romans. Do you remember that? That chapter starts with Paul saying he's he's given us ten chapters of very very dense covenantal theology, and then he says this sweet thing. He says, "I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices." holy and acceptable, which is your your spiritual act of worship. And then, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then what? If your mind is renewed, you're going to be able to test and discern what the will of God is, what's good and acceptable and perfect. Paul, according to Romans chapter 12 believed that your mind could be different than it is right now. He believed that it could be renewed. And he believed that if your mind was renewed, your life could be transformed. It doesn't have to look the same as it does today. That's important. That's really important for your mind to be renewed and your life to be transformed for this reason. You live in a really complex world. And your life is super complex and sophisticated. And the ethical and moral dilemmas that rush at you from every direction, every single second of your day, are going to require from you all sorts of wisdom. You don't have time for the old covenant. You just don't. Because lust and greed and envy and resentment and hatred... They're coming after you. They're coming after me. I know they're coming after you because they're coming after me. And if i got to go find a priest every single time covetousness creeps up in my heart, I'm doomed. But if my mind can be renewed, if the Spirit can come into my mind and come into my heart, then that doesn't happen. The Lord tells us in Corinthians that He'll always give us a way to escape temptation. If we're going to be faithful members of God's kingdom, you got to have God's law in your mind. That's the only way that we're going to know His will. More than that, and maybe more importantly, 
I heard, I read this somewhere this week, and this has got to be one of the truest things I've ever heard. The other problem is why you can't, why you need God's law written on your mind and written on your heart is 95% of our lives is spillover, isn't it? I mean, 95% of the stuff I say to Anna, to my children, to the people that I'm closest to, to the person that I meet on the street, it's not premeditated, folks. That stuff just comes out. When I walk in and I'm done with a day of work, the first thing I say to Anna, it, it would be awesome if it was premeditated. But most, more often than not, it's not. I want God's law written on my heart so that spillover isn't the devil's spillover. I mean, it would be if it wasn't true. I'm just coughing out words all day long. But the New Testament, like we said, as a whole, is, an, is a kind of an expression of, of the, the New Covenant. And one of the things you read in the New Testament over and over again is how much God wants you to be free. You guys remember Jesus says in John chapter 8, If the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. Remember Paul says, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And then, you remember, he says again in Galatians, in Galatians chapter 5, it is for freedom that Christ set you free. Therefore, stand firm and don't submit again to a yoke of, of slavery. It's not freedom to consult a list. It's not freedom if I've got to know precisely everything right that I have to say to my children before I say that to them. It just won't work because I'm not going to consult that list. I've got to have God's law written on my heart. So when we're wrestling, and Jesse doesn't mean to, but he kicks me in my face, and I want something, you know, you know how that happens. I, I want to be gentle, you know, I do. But that's the fruit of the Spirit. That's a fruit of the Spirit. i got to have the Spirit there. I combine the mind and the heart here, right? He says He's going to put His law on our minds, and He's going to put His law on our hearts. And I've combined those two because I don't think He's making a sharp distinction between the two. Of course, we do. We talk about the mind as the seat of the intellect, and we talk about the heart as the seat of the affections and the emotions. But the two go together. God's law needs to be on both of those things. And a heart with God's law on it makes a human being that's going to be directed towards the advancement and the achievement of the kingdom. All right. Then he says, God is your God. God's going to be your God. And you're his people. Okay? And that seems like something. When I was reading that, I was thinking, well, how do, I, how do you make that? How does that come alive in my own life? I know God's my God. I, well, sometimes I feel like God's my God. I say that He is. And usually I feel like I'm one of His people. It may seem like a really obvious thing to say that God is my God. It's like fundamental. But, and that God gives Himself to you freely in the new covenant. But I would venture to say that we don't always feel that way. Um. I don't like being super autobiographical in sermons, and I've done that a couple times today, and I'm going to do it one more time um, for the sake of proving this point. But um, this is an example, uh, this is just truly an example of unbelief in my life. I've struggled for 
I don't know, probably more years than I like to admit with a kind of spiritual depression. I'm not even going to call it spiritual depression. I'll just call it depression. Spiritual makes it sound too holy. It's truly just depression. And it's taken me a long time to be able to admit that, even to admit that to the people that I'm the closest to. And the way that that depression, the the symptom of that depression, usually finds its zenith in a feeling that I experience in my heart and in my mind of not being able to hear God. I do not want that to sound sanctimonious. Uh, That's the way it usually feels. I've run to all sorts of other things when I've been depressed. But truly, the zenith of that symptom is a feeling that I don't trust that God is speaking to me. That I don't know that I hear from Him. And again, I don't mean that to sound holier than thou. I know that depression affects different people differently. But for me, at the end of the day, I will read God's word. I will spend time with God's people. I will spend time in prayer. And the darkness does not lift. And I've had that for years. Sometimes there's a besetting sin tied to it that I need to confess. Sometimes there's a circumstance that's going on that I'm just not talking to people about that I need to share. Sometimes neither one of those things is true, but whatever reason it is, it hurts, and it hurts very badly. I'll tell you what I've learned from um, friends and a wife who I care about very much. That in, the most, in my most vulnerable moments, in my moments when I'm willing to confess that, in my moments when I say, through tears, I just wish I could hear God. I don't feel like I hear God. I'm reading His Word. I know that He's my shepherd. I know that He's leading me by my hand. I know all of that. I, don't, I just wish He would speak a word of comfort to me because I feel very alone. The very best thing that people ever say to me in those moments is nothing fancy. It generally goes like this. John, He is your God. And the darkness is going to lift. And He is walking through this with you. And He sent His Son into the world to destroy the works of the devil. And you are one of His people. And He's your God. The moments when people have said those simple things to me, my life has been altered. Maybe not that moment, but eventually. Those kind of momentary encouragements that are true beyond the shadow of the doubt, that is the newness of the new covenant. You would not find that across a coffee table if you've got to walk all the way to Jerusalem. You will not find that in a bar if you've got to walk all the way across Israel to get to Jerusalem. You will not find that on your living room couch in the Old Covenant. You will find that in the New Covenant. By faith, that's precisely what Jesus is giving you. Finally, and and we'll move on. We live in a new community, and this goes exactly with what I'm saying. Uh, The the hardest thing for me to understand in this passage is when he says, nobody's going to tell anybody else to know the Lord, right? I don't think what the writer has in mind here is that evangelism is going to cease. You understand that. In one way or another, the book of Hebrews is a big piece of evangelism. So he's not saying, um, hide your faith, don't tell people about your faith. That's not what he's doing. So what's he saying? 
I think, at the very least, what he's doing is calling us to have an affirming posture towards one another. When we see someone that's professed faith in Christ, when we've taken the Lord's Supper next to them, when we've seen them confess their sins, when we've seen them give their lives for the church, there is absolutely no reason for us to tell that person, you need to know the Lord more in that moment of vulnerability. We all have a tendency to do that to some degree, though. They're trite admonishment and trite admonishments, trite rebukes that proceed from the mouths of supposed friends and miserable comforters all the time. But what's the different angle? I think the different angle is is just simply the angle that says, I see that you're hurting. I see that your spirit is down and that the flesh and the devil are at work in you, on you. But I know that God has given you a new heart and I already know you know him. And I know he longs for you to walk out of this with him forever. All right, finally, your sins are forgiven. This is it. This is the climax of the new covenant. There's no greater news that the Bible tells you than that your sins are forgiven. But this statement, it comes at the end of a lot of truths that I said at the beginning of the sermon, I find hard to believe, right? Because I don't always feel, like I said, like all these other things are true for me. The reality is, no matter how much the Spirit is at work in you, no matter how disciplined you are, no matter whatever, sin remains and sin begets shame. And shame begets guilt, and sin ruptures relationships through sin and guilt, and sin is the sting of death. But it's forgivable, and it will not finally separate you from God. That's the news the Bible is dying to tell you everywhere. It doesn't have to tell you it in the New Covenant. It tells you back in the Old Covenant, God wants to be merciful to you. It's the news that I need to hear every day. And it is the news that the world is never, ever, ever going to tell you. The world is only going to tell you you're justified by your works. The world is only ever going to tell you that your personal achievement is earned by you and you alone. The world is going to tell you that your children will turn out okay if you rear them right. They're going to tell you that your personal sense of peace and serenity will only come from you. Your relationships will stay strong and flourish only if you earn them. But the gospel will tell you the opposite every single time. And that's the best news in the world because you can't do anything that I just said. Nobody in this room can. Your personal achievement, vocationally, it's meaningless at the end of the day. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Your children are God's finally, and He is doing with them what He is doing. Freedom from the existential disorientation that the devil brings you comes from the Spirit. And whatever friendships God maintains in you will be His joy to do by His own grace. And that's the glory of the new covenant. And it's all yours if you receive it by faith. I just want to end by saying this. If you don't know any of these things to be true in your life, I know that they're imperfect in your life. They're imperfect in mine. Please come this morning. 
Come to Jesus. Come and find in His Spirit freedom that will set you free for the rest of your life. To speak to somebody that can share that with you and walk out of this place a new person this morning. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank You for the new covenant. What a glorious truth it is that our iniquities are forgiven. Your sin, our sins you're not going to remember. You've given us a new community. Your law is becoming written on our hearts. Our minds are becoming set on things above and not on things here, but set on things where your Son is. And so I pray that the fruit of the Spirit would be exhibited in all of our lives today. We love you, Lord, and we praise you in your name. Amen.